Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Uh, well, good morning and welcome. Kind of feel like I should dance my way out, you know, with the music going, but this is church, so I'm not going to dance. So for those of you who I don't know yet, my name is Michael DeFazio, and as of about a month ago, I have the privilege of being an official part of the team here, the ministry staff at Christ Church, and it's been a joy to become uh, this in this way a part of what God is, is doing here, and my full-time job is as a professor down at Ozark Christian College in Joplin, but I'll be doing some um, teaching and preaching here on a regular basis, and uh, so far up to this point, every time I've preached here, it's been as a guest, so I could kind of say whatever I wanted. <laughs> Got to be a little bit more careful now, you know, some things on the line. And since I'll be up here now and then, uh, just a couple things about me. I grew up in church, been to ch- going to church most of my life, which means two things. Uh, first of all, it means I've always kind of known God. And secondly, I've always kind of needed counseling. So um, I don't know if those two are related or not. But to be honest, one of the things when I think about church and growing up there and, and being in church, I do think about this statement that I heard like over and over again in like this particular churchy voice. And the statement that I remember hearing was, you shouldn't do that in here. You ever heard that before? You know what I mean? When I think about church, among the things I think about is that statement, you shouldn't do that in here. Uh, I just want to make sure that we're all together on this. So I'm going to count to three, and I want you to give me your best, you shouldn't do that in here in a church voice, okay? So I'm going to say one, two, three, you say that. So one, two, three. That's pretty good, okay? We're just going to practice one more time. I want you to look at somebody next to you, and I want you to add in the finger wag. You know what I mean? Like elbow up, finger wagging, and I want you to say on three, one, two, three, you shouldn't do that in here. Yeah, that's the one. You need counseling too. Awesome. You know what I'm talking about. So I mean, we in my church growing up, like if you wanted to build a building for little boys to run in, this is what you would have built, you know? Like you had the sanctuary, and then there was these three parallel hallways connected at the ends. It was basically like signs saying, let's just run laps, just run around, you know? So we did. We'd run around, and oftentimes somebody a little older than us would pop their head out of a classroom and say, you shouldn't do that in here. We had one of these, uh, you remember, you ever heard, of, you, you remember like fellowship halls? You know what a fellowship hall is? I don't. It's not a hallway, and I'm not sure what fellowshipping, anyway. So there was this room called the Fellowship Hall, just this big room. To us, it was the place where, when my mom had to volunteer, we'd go in there before church, because we had to go up, show up early, and just play. Like, we'd play soccer, kicking stuff around, you know, and uh, uh, oftentimes we'd hear that phrase. I remember at one time we were playing soccer, and this, this uh, person poked their head in and said, you, you kids shouldn't be doing that in here. And so we kept playing and then uh, kicked the ball and hit the fluorescent light cover and the cover hits the floor and shatters. And so we decided it would be a good time to run around, you know, so we did. I remember this one time, all I'm sitting in church, I'm being a good little boy, paying attention. All I'm doing is I'm chewing some gum. You know what I mean? I'm popping my gum over here and uh, this dude looks at me and says, you shouldn't do that in here. I'm like, man, why? Like, what's wrong with that? What kind of a God doesn't like bubble tape, you know? 
It's my first real theological crisis. But uh, thankfully, I was able to kind of move beyond this. And in, in elementary school, I brought this friend to church with me named Corey Deer. He was a good buddy of mine. Uh, good kid, not a church kid. So he's in the service. It's a Sunday morning. He is bored out of his mind. And it's during the message, during the sermon, and he wasn't paying any attention. And I'm trying to, but I'm struggling, you know. And it was like this where we had the hard floors, but we had these old pews, you know. And in front, there was the big hymnal. So he takes out this hymnal from the pew in front of him. It's like 16 inches thick. I mean, this is a big book, you know. And he's holding it like this. And I'm like, oh, no. Like, I know what he's about to do. And so he holds it like lap high and drops it. And it just boom, thud on the ground. Every eye looks at us. And so I looked at him and I was like, dude, you shouldn't do that in here. (laughs) But I kept going to church and mostly I loved it. And then um, in high school, God made it pretty clear to me that he was calling me into ministry. It was June 4th, 1998. And I remember the day and I remember the moment when a lot of things had come together and it was God communicating to me, this is what I want you to do. It's my calling on your life is to serve the church officially, vocationally for your entire life. And so I went to Bible college at Ozark, then graduated, and I moved to a church where I became one of the pastors at the church for eight years. And those were, and those were, those were good years, but I'll be honest, some of them were tough. And there were some times when I'd go to Starbucks or I'd go to the bookstore, I'd go to Walmart, and I'd think, man, I wonder how much they pay. I wonder if they're hiring, you know, because I just kind of wanted out. I just wanted to do something that in certain ways was easier I resonate with this guy I heard about named Henry Jones. Uh, Henry was, uh, woke up one sunny Sunday morning to his wife kind of standing over him, shaking him, saying, you got to wake up. We got to go to church. He said, I don't, don't want to go to church. And so she just crossed her arms and says, would you give me three good reasons why you shouldn't go to church? And he says, all right. Number one, I don't get anything out of the sermon. Number two, I don't like anybody there. And number three, nobody there likes me. So he's kind of satisfied, you know, and she just rolls her eyes. And he says, why don't you give me three good reasons why I should get up and go? And she said, okay, number one, uh, you can learn something even from a bad sermon if you pay attention. Uh, Number two, there are some good people there who do like you. And number three, you are the preacher. (laughs) Happens to us too, you know. But really, we loved it. We, we didn't run from that. We, we loved what was going on there, but we, we really sensed a, a direction to move. And so we moved here, and I became uh, a professor at the college, and we just got to go to church on Sundays. And for a couple of years, Sundays were nice, you know? Like, y'all are spoiled. You don't even know. So Beth and I would be going home from church. We spent, like, just a couple of hours, not, like, 12. Like, this is amazing. And so we were enjoying that kind of new rhythm. And then Mark approached me and said, hey, I'd like you to consider becoming part of the team. I'm like, well, crap. Some of y'all are thinking, you shouldn't say that in church. I know you're thinking it. You can write Mark an email complaint. He loves those. So, and I'm kidding though. Really, the decision was easy. I I love this church. I'm not just saying that, I do mean it. And more importantly, I love the church. I would not be who I am today without the church. She can be, yes, really petty and annoying, but I love her. Uh, Somebody once said that the church may be a cranky old woman, but she's also your mother. (laughs) And that's true of me. I am who I am because of my mama. And I mean that in a literal sense, and I also mean that in a church sense. I'm here standing where I am, walking the way I am because of countless Sunday school teachers and youth workers and mentors and friends who invested in me and my faith when I'm sure they had a lot of other things they could have been doing. So yeah, I love the church, but I'm not so naive to think that everybody feels the same way. I know that many of you and certainly many of your friends feel they've been burned by the church. Maybe you needed them when when you were in a a, a position of need and you felt like they should be there and they weren't. 
that maybe you shared something and it backfired. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's that if you, uh, you think that if you were to share that thing, your secret or secrets, if you were to talk about in, with your church people what really goes through your mind, what really is happening in your heart, you fear that the shoe would drop and, and you would no longer be welcome. I don't know what it is. You do. Others find themselves embarrassed by what we see of the church on TV shows or on the news or in the media. And I think still others, a lot of people just look at this and say, I mean, it's fine, whatever. It's just not for me. The church is unnecessary. And we recognize that for many people and for many of us, when you think about church, if you think about church, one of the questions that you ask is why? So we're going to tackle this question head on. We're not afraid of asking tough questions around here, so we want to go after this one that most of our world and many of us are thinking. Why church? If you're a guest with us, first of all, welcome. Uh, We're glad you're here. Maybe you're wondering how in the world you got roped into this. You know, you just asked somebody an innocent question about an armband, and all of a sudden, here you are, opening Sunday of NFL season, and you're sitting in church going, what in the world? We're glad you're here. We hope that you find this a welcoming place, and we're happy to talk to you about why we do church, and what you get to discover over these next few weeks is that we don't always like each other either, you know, but we still do this. Here's why. But before we answer the why question, I kind of feel like we need to back up a tad and get a little bit of a running start by establishing some common ground. Before we ask why church, I think we need to be careful not to assume this. I think we need to first ask, does God tell us to go to church? Does he command it? Because if he doesn't, then it's a different question, you know? If he says whatever, then it's whatever. But if he says yes, then we gotta wrestle with it. And I don't think we should assume that everybody's on the same page. A lot of times Christians assume this. I think we should actually give it some attention. Maybe you've heard or said, I've heard this plenty of times. I mean, I just, I just feel like I connect with God more in nature, which may be true, but I sometimes wanna say, do you just mean you like playing golf? Because I'm not, I'm not hating. I'm just, let's just call it what it is. I got a lot of students that love to worship God through relaxation, which means taking a nap. You know what I mean? So uh, but we need to know, does God tell us we have to do this? And it won't take long. I just want to kind of briefly answer this question for you. Maybe, uh, m- maybe you're vaguely aware of the fact that Jesus said, you can't just love God. You got to love people. We kind of like that thing that he said, you've got to love people as well. And maybe you are aware of the fact that, you know, sometimes we say, okay, I love people. Do I have to love Christians? Like, how does that work? And maybe you know that in the New Testament, you have almost 60 statements that end with the phrase, one another, love one another, bear with one another, trust one another, instruct one another. All these things indicate to us that we have to love each other, not just sort of people in a general sense. And yet that still raises the real question, do we have to do this? Do we have to gather together? Do we have to go to a place where we do these things? Is this necessarily a part of God's design for our lives? And to answer this question, I just want to turn to a passage real briefly in Hebrews chapter 10. You can turn there if you want to, or you can just follow along on the screens. Uh, This letter, Hebrews, was written during times of the early church to a group of followers of Jesus who had some pretty good reasons to stop going to church, just to be honest. They were looking at their lives, they were looking at their situation, saying it would be easier for us if we stopped doing this. And the whole letter of Hebrews is, is written to say, don't give up on Jesus and don't give up on church. Here's the part I want to read, just a few verses, chapter 10 of Hebrews. I'm going to start in verse 22 and build up to the main verse, which is verse 25. So here's what he writes. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. 
Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And here's the key part. Not giving up the habit of meeting together, or not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. It's pretty clear that going to church, meeting together regularly, is a part of God's design for our lives. So, does God command us to go to church? Yes. But that just begs our real question. Why? Why should we listen? Why should we obey? Why should we do what he says? And maybe for many of you, if God says it, that's enough. But I know that for me, sometimes it's a little bit more complicated than that, so I think we should keep digging. And here's our first answer to the why question. I'll give you the simplest version, and then I'll kind of unpack it a little bit. It's a two-word question. Why church? So let me give you a two-word answer. Because God. I can't say it any simpler than that. Why church? Because God. And if I could expand it just a little bit, I'd say, why church? Because of who God is. Why church? Because of who God is. One more, because I want you to hear this. Why church? Because of who God is, this God who commands church. You see, if I told you, uh, so-and-so said you need to quit your job and move to Malaysia, you know what you'd say to me? First of all, who are you? And secondly, who is so-and-so, right? Or if I said um, to somebody who was dating, I have a friend who thinks that you should get married and you should do it right away. Okay, which friend and why should, why should I listen to them? So if God says, go to church, of course we should ask, who is this God? And hear me well, I'm not just saying because God said so, though that's, I realize that for some of you that's enough. I'm saying because of the God who says so, because of who he is. Let me put it to you this way. Now, why church? Because our God is a covenant God. Zach mentioned that we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy 29 today, and so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there, and I want to unpack this idea of God being a covenant God, and I know it's taken a little while for us to get to our primary text, but I wanted us to be ready to hear what this passage has to say. Uh, Full disclosure on this, I admit that when Mark gave me this preaching assignment, this topic with this text, I was kind of like, Deuteronomy 29? Like, why are we going there? I don't get the connection. But then I studied it and prayed through it and thought through it, and I realized, okay, I get it. This is dead on. This is brilliant. So props to him for seeing what I never would have seen on my own. I just get to share the fruit of that assignment. We're going to read a decent bit of this, uh, chapter 29, verses 1 through 18. So we're going to break it up into chunks. And first, I just want to read verse 1, kind of get our bearings a little bit, get our heading. So here's uh, what, uh, what, what we read in Deuteronomy 29, 1. And Deuteronomy, by the way, is a book of sermons by Moses to the people of Israel. They've been delivered from slavery in Egypt, and God said, I'm going to lead you through the wilderness, took 40 years to get there, and into the promised land. And they're just about there. They're at the end of this journey, and Moses says, let's back up, let's remember who we are, let's remember what God has done, and then let's move forward. This is the last of those sermons in this book. Here's what it says, Deuteronomy 29.1. These are the terms of the covenant If you don't mind writing in your Bibles, I'd like to ask you to underline or circle that word. These are the terms of the covenant the Lord commanded Moses to make with the Israelites in Moab. In addition to the covenant, there it is again, he had made with them at Horeb. So we'll stop here and get our heading. We believe in a God who makes covenants with people. We believe in a God who enters into covenant relationships with us. And we need to camp out here for just a minute. Because we often say that God wants a relationship with you. And that's 100% true. 
But our world can confuse us on what relationships even are. I mean, the last few hundred years have seen significant changes in the way we view relationships. I mean, just think about marriage. And I'm not even talking about the SCOTUS stuff. I'm not even talking about the controversial stuff. I'm talking about deeper changes, deeper transformations in the way we approach these things. A couple hundred years ago, uh, having a good marriage was as much about putting food on the table as it was making each other happy. Having a good marriage was about finding a way to do life together. You depended on each other. You needed each other. And we've almost changed that in our day to where now it seems like the only real test for a good marriage is the impossible task of making another person happy all the time. I mean, good luck. You see the difference? One is directed to something outside of itself and one is just sort of internal only. We often want the pleasure without the commitment. I mean, anybody ever heard the name Ashley Madison? Yikes. So we want relationship without the work and with God what we say is we want spirituality without religion. I don't know what all people mean by that, but I think often what it means is, I'd like the feeling of being close to God, but I don't actually want to put anything into it. And the Bible says, actually, God wants a covenantal relationship with you. So what is that, and how does it work? Let's keep reading. First, I want to read, or next, I want to read, starting in verse 2, and I'm going to read up through verse 8, and we're going to see the first half of what I think it means to have a covenant relationship with God, and there's a lot of details in, you, in here, and we don't have time to talk through all of them, but I want you to catch the big picture of what Moses is saying. Deuteronomy 29, starting in verse 2, Moses summoned all the Israelites and said to them, your eyes have seen all that the Lord did. That's where he starts, what God did. In Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials and all his land. Uh, with your own eyes you saw those great trials, those signs and great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. Yet the Lord says, during the 40 years that I led you through the wilderness, your clothes didn't wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other fermented drink. And I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. And when you reached this place, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, came out to fight against us, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Notice how he says that God is the one who acted. Notice how he says that God is the one who provided, that God is the one who protected. And I think we could summarize all of this by recognizing that the first half of what it means for God to be a covenant God is that God makes the first move every time. He loved you first. God takes the initiative. We often talk about finding God, and that's fine as far as it goes, but the truth is, he found us. And when we find him, we're finding someone who's been looking for us all along. We're not the first ones to reach up. God reached down and rescued you. Now, there are different kinds of covenants in the ancient world, and some of them were treaties between two equal parties. I have something you need, you have something I need, we make a trade, and all is well. That's not what this kind of covenant is. This is the kind of covenant where one person, where one party has all the resources and all the strength and all the grace and looks down at someone in need and says, you want help? And we gotta remember how this works because it's easy to forget. It happens in other relationships too. Uh, we have a running debate in our home, in my own home, about all the ins and outs of Beth and I falling in love. We disagree about what was our first date and all these different kinds of things, and we just love to talk about this, but what we agree on is who began pursuing who. Well, she did, of course. I'm just kidding. It was me. 
And it all started on the first day of the second semester of my sophomore year, when after classes I walk into my dorm room and after me walks my roommate and he declares with this regal voice five words that I will never forget, these five words that changed my life. What he said is, dude, I met your wife. I'm like, awesome, okay, like I need to meet her, right? And so he speaks of this Beth, and I'm intrigued by this Beth, and so I set off to find her. And I'm serious, it was like a bad movie. Like every time I'd see the back of her head, she'd walk around a corner, you know? And I felt like there was some goofy video cameras around or something. But eventually, I found her, I met her, I was introduced to her. And then I realized that uh, she had this uh, habit of going to the library, and she'd sit in a particular part of the library. And uh, where my dorm was, like I could just look out my window and see the parking lot. And so if I kind of needed to go to the library, I'd take a look out the window. If her car was there, I'd go take my books over there and stop by and say hello. And she calls it stalking, by the way. <laughs> but I call it laying down some game, you know what I mean? <laughs> And uh, just so you know, I'm just saying, it worked. Anyway, what's not in question is that I pursued her before she even knew that I existed. I took the initiative. I made the first moves. And much more importantly, God did the same thing for you. You didn't ask him to save you, and then he did it. He sent his son long before any of us looked up. He acted in mercy and grace when we deserved the opposite. He said, here's my son. I'm going to let you kill him, and kill him, and I'm going to love you anyway. He provided him as an atoning sacrifice for our sins before I even woke up and said, God, I'm sorry for the things that I've done. And that's the first half of God being a covenant God. He moves first, and he has moved toward you whether you've realized it up to this point or not. But the second part of this is equally critical, and you can see it in the rest of our text. Deuteronomy chapter 9, reading from verse 9 down through to the end in verse 18. Once again, notice there's a lot of details. I want you to catch the big picture. Here's what Moses says. He says, carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. All of you are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God, your leaders and chief men, your elders and officials, and all the other men of Israel, together with your children and wives and the foreigners living in your camps who chop your food and carry your water. He's saying, you're all here, verse 12. You are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am making this covenant with its oath, not only with you who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God, but also with those who are not here today. You yourselves know how we lived in Egypt and how we passed through the countries on the way there, way here. You saw among them their detestable images and idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold. Make sure there's no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. A lot of details, but the gist of it is one. That is that after God saves you or in God saving you, what he says to you is now live this way. Number one, God makes the first move. Number two, God commands an obedient response. You want to understand what a covenantal relationship is? you got to have both halves of this. As God saves you, he then calls you to a certain way of life. Now make no mistake, nothing you do is designed to earn his favor. Can't happen. Nothing you have ever done or will ever do, no great deed is enough to establish his own favor and his own love. He loved you first. His mercy and grace precede that. Then he loved you just as you are, warts and all, but he refuses to leave you that way. He doesn't just say, now you belong to me. Okay, do whatever you want. And what real relationship works that way anyway? 
I mean, what husband says to his new wife, call me when you need me, but other than that, we're just going to keep living the same way we've always been living. And what wife says to her husband, sleep where you want most of the time as long as you're at home with me on Saturday nights. And what parent says to an adopted child, welcome to the family. We don't have any rules, so live it up. Not good ones. We make rules for each other, and we place demands on one another's lives, not because we're harsh, but because that's true love. That's how covenant love works. And so the point is that God's offer and his demand go hand in hand. You can't separate them. He makes both, and they don't compete. You see the same thing when you look at Jesus. Jesus says, you got to give up everything to follow me. There's the demand. And what good is all that stuff anyway if you lose your soul in the end? There's the offer. Or one time he came up on this woman who was caught in an act of sin, caught in the act of adultery, and she's being condemned by these people, and Jesus says, I didn't come here to condemn you, but to forgive you. There's the offer. Go now and leave your life of sin. There's the demand. Again, the point is that God's offer and his demand go hand in hand. You cannot separate them because he makes both and they don't compete, and anything less than both is something less than love. Now come back to our question, why church? Well, if you don't believe in God, I do not expect this to perfectly resonate with you. I just hope you keep coming back, keep processing with us what we believe, and keep, keep wrestling with whether or not what we're saying is true. But if you do believe in God, like at all, like I don't know if you need to know anything else. We go to church because the God who saved us by grace tells us to. This covenant God who mercifully brought us from death to life, This God who reached down and rescued us from the gutter and put us up in a palace is the same God who inspired the author of Hebrews to write, do not give up the habit of meeting together. Y'all feeling what I'm saying? You hearing what I'm putting down here? Listen to this because this is both sides of one truth and it's just like a bird. You kill one wing, the bird can't fly. You gotta have both if you want this God. The God who makes promises is the God who issues commands. Same God. And if your plan is to take the offer but reject the command, reject the demand, then you probably shouldn't call yourself a worshiper of God. You probably shouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus. You probably shouldn't call yourself a Christian. And I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just saying let's call it like it is and be real with one another. To say yes to God but no to church? To say yes to the offer but no to the demand? You don't really trust him. You don't want a covenant relationship. You want a consumer relationship where you get whatever you want and that's the end of it and God's not interested because that's not good for anyone. You can't ask God to be your dad without letting the church be your mom, warts and all. But I'm not just here to say, you shouldn't think like that in church. I'm here bringing the good news that there is a God in heaven who makes his presence known on earth and he is a person that you can trust. I mean, doesn't this just make sense? If he's strong enough to save you, then he's wise enough to lead you. And if you want to take the grace, receive the guidance too. Think about what Mark just taught us in this past series. How many times did he find new ways to say this important truth? Here's how I heard it from his lips. He said multiple times, if God says no to something, it's because that thing is poison for your soul. And if God says yes to something, it's because that thing is best for you. And God says yes to church. I like to put it this way. God's best for you is the best for you every time. And you can believe this because the God who commands you, the God who instructs you, the God who teaches you is the one who proved his love by sacrificing his own son to be with you. So should you go to church? Yes. Why? 
because God. Not just because God says so, but because of the God who says so, because of his nature and character and goodness, because he's a good, good father. Because this covenant God is obviously a God who loves us. This covenant God is one we can trust to only command what is best. A couple of times in preparation for this message over the last few weeks, people have asked me, what's your goal for this message? What's your goal for this sermon? And I guess ultimately my goal is that you'd see that God can be trusted and that you trust him in whatever way you're tempted not to. But my immediate goal, more specifically, is that you would recognize that you made a wise decision in being here today and that you would make that same decision next week and the following week and the week after that. Not just because I or anybody else has vested interest in you being in the room. That's totally beside the point. And not just because this place is perfect. It's not. But because as many good reasons as you have to say no to church, you got a better reason to say yes. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and loving pursuer of every person in this room, even you and even me. Therefore, we go to church. Amen? Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.